This is Chapter 2 in a series of media resources accompanying the Starting Point Conversation Guide. Verdict is a message series delivered at North Point Community Church by Andy Stanley. What is the Bible, and is it reliable? In this message, Andy compares the four Gospels to other ancient manuscripts and texts which are accepted as fact. He then examines the evidence that has led so many to accept Scripture as a credible record of actual events. Listen and decide for yourself. We live in a world that um, would have us all believe that basically all religions lead to the same place. And that it really doesn't matter what you believe because eventually we all die and we all go to a good place. That's what 90% of Americans believe anyway, that believe in heaven and there's a good God and a good heaven and a good place and everybody's good. So at least we all think we're good enough, so we all go there and it doesn't really matter if you get there through you know, Christianity or whatever. At the same time, it's kind of odd, we go to school, we go to universities and um, graduate school... And they tell us that, you know, it's fine to believe whatever you want to believe and all roads lead to God. But I'd be kind of careful about this way to God. Because this is not a book that can be trusted. That because there are so many errors and so many contradictions, because there's so much about the supernatural, that um, it's good maybe for motivation. And, and politicians love to pick phrases out of here and use them strategically. But other than that, it's not really something that you could place your faith in. Because after all, it's just a book like every other book but it's not even as good as most other books many would argue and so you came out of your freshman year of college and some uh, professor dismantled your sunday school faith and they were smarter than you and had more degrees than you and then you got busy and you never looked back and when anybody brings it up or throws out what about the bible you're quick to throw out the things they told you years ago that you never investigated well it's full of errors and it's full of contradictions well actually no i haven't read it but i'm just sure it's full of errors or contradictions or somebody would have told me by now that it's something I should read. And yet the odd thing is, here we are, thousands of us, and all over this city, tens of thousands more, and all over this country, millions of people gather on Sunday morning to worship the God of this book and claim to have a relationship with the son of the God who gave us this collection of books. And, and more than that, almost a third, or some people say over a third of the world's population claim to be Christians. Over a third of the world's population claim they believe in God and that he sent his son and his name was Jesus and that through Jesus they have found forgiveness of sin and they place their whole eternity based on that claim. Now, how is that? Are, are we just that unstable? I mean, do, do we just need propping up that much? Is there something in all of us or in enough of us that says, you know, I don't know if it's true and I don't even need, want to know if it's true, but I've got to have something other than what I see in here. That as we heard this morning in the baptism videos, there is this vacuum, there is this hole, there is this vacancy and all the stuff I have and all the relationships I have, I just can't fill it. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but gee, it seems to work. So I'll just kind of go with that and then pass it on to my kids. I mean, is that all there is to this? I mean, how is it that this could be, book is so easily discredited and yet there's so many of us that keep reading it and believing in it? What's that about? So for the next few weeks, we're going to answer that question. And for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about why specifically we can place our faith in the fact that four of the books we find in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are reliable testimonies, are reliable records of something that actually happened in history 2,000 years ago. Ago, And basically the argument's going to kind of go like this. And we'll give you some phrases up on the screen. It's going to go like this. We're going to argue that, the New, that the, the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a reliable record of things that actually happened. That the Gospels are a reliable record of actual events and actual conversations. If that is true, then what the Gospels have to say about Jesus is true 
as well, because that's what the four Gospels talk about. And if the four Gospels, what the four Gospels have to say about Jesus is true, then in fact he must be the Son of God based on the miracles he performed, the claims he made, and the fact that he rose from the dead. And if, in fact, he is the Son of God based on the claims he made and the fact that he rose from the dead, then what Jesus says about the rest of this book must be true. And maybe most or more importantly, what Jesus said about God is true. People ask me all the time, they'll say, well, Andy, do you really need to think about Jonah and the fish? I mean, give me a break, you know, Adam and Eve. I, mean, you know, I always say the same thing. I say, you know what? I, you know, it's hard to believe that stuff. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I, I know more weird stuff in the Bible than maybe most people because, you know, I'm a professional Christian. You know, you, you pay me to know the Bible. So, I mean, I, got, I mean, you think you've heard some weird stories. I bet I can tell you some stories in there you haven't even heard yet. Be, you'd be like, what? And that all comes back down to this. Do I believe those things happen? Yeah. And it's not because I've ever seen anything like that. It's real simple. Because I believe, as we're going to see for the next few weeks... That the evidence clearly points to the fact that these four New Testament books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually record events that happened in history. And if they record events that, ha- events that happened in history, then what they say about Jesus is true. And if what they say about Jesus is true, then he came from God. And when a man speaks on behalf of God, I don't know about you, but I just kind of go with that. Especially when he predicts his own death and Resurrection. I just always go with the guy that rose from the dead. I don't really care what he teaches. I'm for him. You know, I want to know about that because it's my greatest fear. Like it's your greatest fear. So we're going to talk about can we, and this is important, can we trust, not the whole Bible. We're not going there. We're going to ask the question, can we depend on what these four books say about one individual? The Lord Jesus. Now, as we go down this, this little path and this little argument, um, series of arguments, there's two things you've got to keep in mind. First of all, whenever you're talking about history or things that have happened in the past, there's two things you've got to keep in mind. Number one, you can't prove or disprove things that have happened in the past. That it's not a matter of proving, it's a matter of looking at evidence. And that's why in a courtroom, they don't, you, know, you don't really prove anything. You basically present evidence and a jury looks at the evidence and makes a decision. So whenever we talk about the past, we have to ask the question, what does the evidence point toward? Or we can say it this way, the trustworthiness of any historical account is judged on the basis of evidence, not proof. For instance, tomorrow you go to work and um, you, you say to people in your office, say, hey, I went to North Point Community Church yesterday. And somebody walks over and says, I heard you say you went to North Point Community Church yesterday. You didn't go to North Point Community Church yesterday. You say, well, I certainly did. They say, prove it. You say, well, I got the bulletin. I didn't prove anything. I got a tape. That didn't prove anything. Hey, Fred, Fred, come over here. Didn't you see me at North Point Community Church? Yeah, I saw him there. Didn't prove anything. He could be lying. Whenever it comes to asking the question, did something happen in the past? You can't prove it. You can only prove what is observable and repeatable. In science, you observe and you repeat. You observe and you repeat. But you can't observe the past and you can't repeat in actual real time the past. It's not observable and repeatable. So when it comes to trying to figure out what happens in the past, we ask the question, what is the evidence? And we make decisions based on evidence. The second thing is this. As you look at evidence, you have to ask the question, not what is a possible explanation, but what is the most probable explanation. Say it this way. When drawing conclusions about evidence, probability takes precedence over possibility. It's possible that you stole the bulletin. It's possible somebody gave you the tape. And it's possible you got to Fred before everybody else and said, Hey, Fred, I'm going to say I went to North Point. I mean, all of that's possible. But the probability is you actually... Went to church. When it comes to, to, you know, to the legal system, you, you've heard the phrase probable cause. People ask the question, what was the probable cause? Not the possible cause, because there's 50 possibilities, but what's the most probable cause based on the evidence as presented? 
That's how you determine. That's how you look at history. Um, years ago, I was in a car wreck. I was driving my wife's car that we inherited, or she got when we, I got when we got married. Her dad gave it to her, then I guess he gave it to me, didn't he, when he gave her to me. Anyway, so anyway, so I had this, this big American car, this was years ago, with a real bumper. You know, they used to make real bumpers you could see, you know, like a big piece of steel that wrapped around the back line. Now, you know, that's a bumper. And on the bumper had a big old giant piece of rubber. I mean, you knew where the bumper was. And I'm sitting still at, at Highway 41 over in Cobb County. It's a four lane. And I'm turning left across traffic. And this lady in a Volvo station wagon, it was raining. I don't know, there was a lane beside me that was wide open. There was nobody around. She just plowed right into the back of me, just boom, and totaled her Volvo. The engine dropped out, fire, you know, fire but steam, you know, and liquids, you know. You couldn't even tell my car had been hit, honestly. We never had it fixed. We never even took it in. Uh, there was nothing wrong. It tore and it kind of ripped the piece of rubber that went around the big old American steel bumper. Her car is total. So um, I get in the car. I'm already in the car. I get out and look. Then I go pull across traffic and I park on the other side, two lanes away, facing the other direction. And, and, and she's standing by her car and we wait for the police to come. True story. So the police get, policeman gets there. I'm on the other side. Okay, I'm not even close. So here's this Volvo that's total sitting out in the middle of Highway 41 with nothing around it. The policeman pulls in behind her, gets out of his car, and, and you know she chats a minute. Then he walks out in front of her Volvo. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get across to come over and talk to the policeman. And I notice he's standing there looking at the front of her Volvo, and he's looking over here on the street. And he's looking. He gets out his pad. And, I, and when I walked up, I looked, and there's a dead possum about 15 <laughs> feet out that had been hit the night before. I mean, just like a you know dead possum. So I walk up and the Fulton County policeman, it was so funny, he looks at me with this grin on his face. He said, let's possum do all that. <laughs> now, is that possible? I don't know. You know, the bionic possum got up, she hit it and totaled the car and killed the possum. Look what he did. But no, nobody, I mean, that's not, you know, that, that's not probable. I mean, you could weave some tale, but what about this? What if she'd said, oh, officer, I'm so glad you're here. The, the, this is to save me from this evil man. I pulled up behind him. He jumped out of his car, opened his trunk, got out a sledgehammer and beat the out of my car, totaled my car. And then before I could do anything, someone drove up and he handed the sledgehammer to the person and drove off. And thank you, officer, for being here. Is that possible? It's possible. I mean, if we went to court, I mean, would it be like, excuse me, ma'am, you want to go over that one more, you know? What about this one? Sir, I'm officer, I'm so glad you're here because I pulled up behind Mr. Stanley. He put his car in reverse and rammed me. Then he put it in reverse and he rammed and he rammed and he rammed and he rammed and he totaled my car. And then he drove over there and he's going to tell you that I ran to the back of him. Is that possible? It's possible. Is it probable? I mean, why would you even go there? The, the point is this. When it comes to possibility, you can look at any event in the past and come up with all kinds of possible explanations. But the question is, when you're trying to arrive at what actually happened, you ask, in light of the evidence, what is the most probable explanation? And what we're going to see, I hope, or what the evidence I'm going to throw your way is this, that as we begin to look in detail at where these four books, not the whole Bible... Not the whole New Testament. As we look in detail at the evidence given in these four books, the most probable explanation... I mean, you can come up with all kinds of possibilities. Why four different men wrote four similar accounts about the same Jewish carpenter over a three-year period. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of reasons why four guys would take the time to do that, I guess. But the most probable explanation is because this is what happened. That's why they wrote it down. So we're going to look at the evidence. Now, there's two ways to look at uh, ancient manuscripts. And basically, the Bible is an ancient manuscript. All of ancient history comes from ancient manuscripts because things were written down. And that's how we got what we got. The question is, how do you determine whether an ancient manuscript is trustworthy? And in scholarly circles, there's basically two things you do. You look at the actual manuscript, the date and the distribution of the manuscript. 
And then secondly, you find out what you can about the people who wrote the manuscript. You ask the question, are these reliable people? Are these people that could be trusted? Did they have a motive to write what they wrote? You know, were they being paid by somebody? Was there, was there an angle? You know, was there a reason other than what we know of on the surface why they would write these things? Next week, we're going to look at the witnesses themselves, the guys who wrote this. But today, for just a few minutes, and I'll try to keep this from being boring, I want to talk to you a little bit about the manuscripts themselves. Because this is extremely important, especially as you think about the New Testament manuscripts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically, compared to other ancient manuscripts that come from the first century. Let me illustrate it this way. You see, when you were in high school, you got a book that looked kind of like this. This is actually a high school um, history book. And I turned over to the place where it talks about Roman history. Let me read you something interesting here, okay? Because you read this stuff and you think, gee, where did they get this? Did they find like novels buried in the dirt like Roman? Oh, this is a Roman history book and written in you know, Latin and we translated it into English. Is that how we know what happened? But basically, historians took bits and pieces and fragments and took all the information they could and wove it together. And they come up with these seamless stories that appear in our history. Um, this is kind of neat. Listen to this. This is sort of right in the middle of a paragraph. Caesar realized that he could not win power without a loyal army, so he made himself proconsul of Gaul, a region that is today known as France. In his ten years as proconsul, Caesar brought all of Gaul under Roman rule and showed showed his superb abilities as a military leader and organizer. Caesar issued written reports about his campaigns and victories to keep the people of Rome informed. Students in Latin can still read these clearly detailed reports in what is known as the Gallic Wars. Now, you read that and you, and you stop and say, how did they know that? No video, no pictures, no novels, no history books. How did they know that much detail that he did this? He did this for 10 years. It goes on. Crassus died in 53 B.C. Pompey, meanwhile, grew jealous of Caesar's rising fame. Dun, 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 dun. To head off his rival, Pompey made himself the sole proconsul. Then he persuaded the Senate to order Caesar to return home without his army. How do they know that? I mean, and that, that's basically what history books are about, right? They just go on and on. You read this stuff and you go, this is so fascinating. Where did they get that information? It's real simple. From ancient manuscripts. In fact, it's interesting. In this high school book, it references, it references the commentaries on the Gallic Wars. Let me tell you about the Gallic Wars. The Gallic Wars is a, a manuscript. We have ten copies of it. We have ten copies of the Gallic Wars. It was written in the first century by a fellow who was hired by the emperor to write a history. Now, just let me throw this out. You're, you're smart, folks. You know, can we trust everything written by a historian that's working for the emperor? The emperor saying, I want you to write a history in, about me. Go ahead. Let me, I'll read it later. You know. So when you're hired by the emperor to write a history of Rome about the current emperor, his legacy, and you know, his ancestors, I mean, there's just going to be some stuff you leave out, right? Because he's going to either scratch it out or scratch you out, right? I mean, so anyway, basically the Gallic Wars, it's interesting. We have ten copies of this document. Only ten survived. And interestingly enough, the earliest one, the, 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 the one that, is, that goes back the furthest, is dated 900 A.D. Now, this happened in the first century. But we don't have one from the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, the sixth century. We don't have any of this. We have copies of a copy 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 that stretches into 900 A.D. And we have ten copies. And yet, no one disputes the fact that that's history. Right here it is right here quoted, you know, referenced in a high school history book. That's history. It was written by one person who was hired by a Roman emperor, and we don't even have a copy except nine, almost 900 years beyond when it was really written because the parchment wore out, things were lost, and so they made copies and copies and copies. Another huge find for Roman historians 
um, was some writings by a fellow named Tacitus. Tacitus is quoted everywhere when you, when you study Roman history. Tacitus wrote um, at the end of, during the end of the first century, and Tacitus was, just wrote volumes and volumes of history. He actually wrote 30 volumes of Roman history, 30 volumes divided into two groups of 15. Unfortunately, more than half of his work has been lost forever. Nobody knows where it is. There are no copies anywhere. But we have two manuscripts, two manuscripts that contain about half of his 30 volumes. We know there were more volumes because he references those throughout the volumes that we do have. So we know originally there were 30. We only have half and we only have two copies of the half. And the two copies we have are dated 900 A.D., and 1100 A.D. So once again, we have copies of something that was written in the first century, but the copies we have are a thousand, up to a thousand years old because they're copies of 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 copies. And yet, in your university history book and in your high school history book, Tacitus is quoted like it's just gospel truth. I mean, nobody, if your high school student wrote on the paper, I don't believe this actually happened because it's on the source of one person and the earliest manuscript we have is 900 A.D. And besides, he was working for a Roman emperor, so it's suspect. I don't think any of this is true. I mean, I don't think your high school history teacher is going to go, brilliant observation, you get an A. They're going to go, just write down what we taught you. It's in, it's in the history book. You know it's true. Now, let me ask you a question. You know where I'm going with this. Wouldn't you expect Roman history to be something that survives through the ages? Absolutely. I mean, these Roman emperors have this stuff written. They have it copied. They store it. They pass it down to the next generation. They, build the, they would build vaults to save these parchments. I mean, they worked hard so that these things would survive generation after generation. So we would expect to have some texts from first century Roman history. We would expect, I mean, all the power of Rome, right? I mean, you know, world leaders protecting this stuff. We would expect that. Let me ask you this. Would you expect to have... Four detailed accounts of the life of one man who was a Jewish carpenter from where? Where was it, Mabel? Galilee? From Galilee. What's a Galilee? Who didn't lead anything? He didn't write anything? And yet, listen, we have more information about Jesus Christ than the Roman emperors of his day. And you had all of Rome with all their wealth and all their power producing this stuff. And the, the most recent document we have is like 900 A.D. And we've got a couple of copies. Get this. The gospel manuscripts, not the whole New Testament. We'll get to that later. Just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have hundreds of manuscripts. And you know what the earliest ones date to? Not 900 A.D., not 800, not 700, not 600, not 500, not 400, not 300. We have fragments of the book of John that are dated 135 A.D. And guess where it was found? Not Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria. It was found in Egypt. This goes back to distribution. What would a copy of the gospel be doing in Egypt, for goodness sake? Because that's how broadly distributed this stuff was. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their complete form, just like are in your Bibles. By 250 A.D., we have copies that old of those four books. Now, where does that come from? Why in the world would so much time and attention be given to recording the life? And get this, not even the whole life of Jesus, three years. I mean, historians would write volumes over years and years of a Roman emperor and his family and his legacy and the future and all the stuff he's done. These guys gave incredible detail to just three years of a, Roman, of a Jewish 
carpenter. And it has survived through the ages. And not has it just survived through the ages. We have far more manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than we do of, of any other ancient history. It's unbelievable. And people say, well, yeah, but you know, all that copy of copy of copy of copy of copy. There's all kinds of mistakes, and I'm sure you've heard this. You know, the Bible is written by man, and it was copied, and it's full of errors because of all the copies. We've got some great news for you. There are, there are differences in the manuscripts. So here's the good news. Unlike secular history, and, and if you talk to a secular historian who's honest, they'll agree. If only they had the quality and the number of manuscripts they had for ancient history that we have for the New Testament. I mean, there's no other document that's even close to um, being documented as well as the New Testament. There's not even a, a close second. And yes, there are differences in some of the manuscripts, but the good news is this. We have so many thousands of manuscripts that it's very simple to back down into what we think the original said. In fact, when I was in graduate school, uh, we had to learn to do higher textual criticism. Higher criticism, textual criticism. And textual criticism, we'd have to sit down with our Greek New Testaments, and the professor would say, okay, the Byzantine manuscripts, it says spirit. And the Western manuscripts, it says Holy Spirit. Now, you take the evidence and decide, did the original author write spirit or Holy Spirit? It was just fascinating work. You know, as so we're going through all this stuff and we're tracing and we're looking and we're looking and, my, you know, we're just going to figure out. Because here we are, these students, what do we know? I mean, people through the ages have debated this. But we're figuring out, well, did the guy say spirit or was it Holy Spirit? Did somebody add a word or did somebody leave a word out? So one day I go to my professor, Dr. Manning. I said, I said, um, I mean, Dr. Fanning. I said, Dr. Fanning, I said, I got a question. I said, I know this is fascinating stuff. People spend their whole life trying to sort this stuff out. Give me the hard one. I mean, where's the one that says, one of them said Jesus had 12 disciples and one said he had 26. Where's that one? I was just making this stuff up. You know, where's the one that said he was crucified? And then where's the ones that said, no, he fell off a cliff? You know, where, where are the big ones? Where are the ones that's like, oh my gosh, look at the conflict. The Bible, he said, and he said, there aren't any. They're all as trivial as that. We have given you the more blatant ones to work through as Greek students. You see, all the scribal errors and stuff, there's lots of scribal errors, but it would be like you taking a letter that someone had written you and copying it. Would you make some mistakes? Yeah, you might make some mistakes. But at the end of the day, the letters wouldn't say two different things, right? It wouldn't be like a completely different letter about a completely different subject. You may misspell a word. You may leave out a word. You may make a plural, a singular. Those are the kinds of variant readings. In fact, and, and you can go to any bookstore and buy a Greek New Testament. And the footnotes have all the variant readings. It tells you what area of the country, what area of the world, rather, the manuscripts were found. And here's the variant readings. And they amount to nothing significant in terms of theology, nothing significant in, even in terms of history. So the point is this. Just based upon manuscripts alone. Just, I mean, you compare, the, not even the whole New Testament. In fact, in case you're interested, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. We have hundreds of manuscripts of just the four Gospels. But just the Gospels alone, if you just looked in terms of the integrity and the distribution of the manuscripts, these four books of the Bible outweigh most of, some would argue, all of the details of Roman history during the same time. Not to mention other ancient history where we have no trace of anything and have to piece things together based on archaeology alone. It's unbelievable. So the question then is, well, Andy, if it's that obvious, then why doesn't secular, you know, historians, why don't they consider this history? Why don't we read, you know, uh, Tacitus wrote and Matthew wrote? 
Why don't we write, you know, the, the, the Caesar claim, but at the same time, John tells us, I mean, why aren't the things that we find in the Gospels, the history in the Gospels, the events in the Gospel, the rulers, why aren't those things woven in as just part of what we would read in our history books? Why aren't they considered history? If there's more manuscripts, if there are better manuscripts, if they're more widely distributed, distributed, and if there aren't major contradictions within the different regions of manuscripts found all over that part of the world, why, I mean... Why would we trust one person's view on, you know, what happened during one Roman emperor's reign as opposed to four guys talking about one person? I mean, what's the problem? The problem is real simple. And I want to be real sensitive how I say this. The problem is that there is a prejudice against the supernatural. Let me explain what I mean by that. It kind of goes like this. And I'm being a little facetious, so I'm not trying to be critical of anybody, but I'm trying to summarize a lot of stuff. It kind of goes like this. Before I look... At those texts, I want you to know I do not believe in the supernatural. It's not that I may not believe in God, but I don't believe in supernatural things. I don't think God did hocus pocus weird things, walking on water and fish and stuff, you know, all that stuff. I, I just don't believe, I may believe in God, but I don't believe he does that kind of stuff. And I don't believe that a guy came along and was God. Okay, so before, before I look at the evidence, I just want you to know that's my opinion. Okay, before I even look at the evidence. Now I'm going to look at the evidence and go, oh, supernatural, we can't, we can't consider that. Oh, supernatural there too, can't consider that. In fact, all four of those books have supernatural events, so we have to discount the whole thing. Now let me t- try to explain to you in, in best terms that I can the fallacy of that kind of thinking. Here it is. And the problem is in our academic circle, it gets academicized to the point where it sounds like a real intellectual kind of smart people wouldn't, really wouldn't believe that because that's for us people who need a crutch. But here's, how, here's the problem. It is foolish. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense at all to judge the authenticity of an ancient manuscript according to my personal 21st century experience. It's an irrational argument. It's not even an argument. To say, let me kind of say it in more detail, since I've never seen anything supernatural... Since my mama never saw anything supernatural, since my mama's mama never seen anything supernatural, since my friends have not seen supernatural things, because I don't live in a world where supernatural things happen, I've concluded that supernatural things never happened. Now, show me the evidence. This doesn't even make any sense. I I can understand why emotionally there would be a resistance to viewing these books as reliable because of the supernatural. But the question is this. That's not a problem with these books. That's a problem with an orientation we have imposed on the book. So I'll take the word of somebody working for the emperor over the word of four people who wrote about the same person over a three-year period of life, basically because Tacitus doesn't talk about the supernatural. So I know he's trustworthy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on the other hand, who died, by the way, for what they said they saw, they're not trustworthy because they talk about the supernatural. It's not even an argument. It would be like me saying this. It would be like saying, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. We got pictures. I don't care. We got a museum. I'm telling you. I don't think the Holocaust happened the way you think it happened. What do you mean? Because for the Holocaust to have happened, there would have to be a category of hatred, racism, insanity that was so powerful that it could not only impact a person but impact an entire nation. And I don't think that kind of intense prejudice and evil exists. And the reason I don't think it exists is because I've never felt that way toward a people or a person or a race. None of my friends have ever felt that way. I've never seen that kind of racism. I've never seen that kind of, of evil. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. Therefore, consequently, I don't think it exists. 
And the only way the Holocaust could have happened the way they say it happened is for that kind of evil to exist. And since I've never experienced it, since I've never seen it, I don't think it exists. So give me a few days and I'm going to come up with another explanation for all those pictures and all those things and all those testimonies and all those books. I'm not saying something didn't happen. I'm just telling you it's not because there was because of what you said it happened is the reason it happened. I think there's another explanation because going in to look at the evidence, I've decided that kind of hatred doesn't really exist in the world. You would say, I don't care what you've experienced, and I don't care what your friends have experienced, and I don't care what you've seen or not seen. Look at the evidence. We have pictures, right? What if I said, you know what? I don't believe all those stories about firemen racing up the stairs and saving all those people in the World Trade Center. I don't believe any of that happened. I think all of that's fictitious. Well, what do you mean you think it's fictitious? Well... To race up into a burning building in the middle of all that chaos to save people would mean those firemen had to have an incredible amount of courage and daring. And I know I wouldn't do it. And my friend said they wouldn't do it. And I've never seen that kind of heroism and that kind of courage displayed. So I don't think that kind of courage and heroism even exists. And the only way those stories could be true is for that kind of thing to exist. Since it doesn't exist, I don't think it happens the way you think it happened. Now, I know something happened. But you give me a few days, I'm going to come up with a different explanation for what happened based upon the fact that my experience doesn't substantiate the idea of that kind of heroism, that kind of courage. You would say, what in the world does your experience have to do with history? I, it, I mean, the fact that you haven't experienced something or felt something has nothing to do with whether or not something happened in the past. And here's the point. As we come to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and if, you're a, if you're not a Christian or not a church person, I, I completely understand you come to this, in fact, you came to church today with a predisposition toward, against the supernatural. That's okay. Of course you have one, because you don't see supernatural things. But all I want to do is warn you, be careful that you don't take what you've experienced or haven't experienced, what you've seen or haven't seen, and say, therefore, I know these books can't record what really happened based on what has or hasn't happened to me. Do you see, that's not an argument. That's irrational. That's not academic that's not scientific. That is a leap of faith. It's imposing my experience on history. How foolish. How unfair. And I think it's part of the reason why God in his wisdom didn't just have Matthew say, let me tell you what I saw. And he didn't just have Mark say, hey, I talked to Peter. Let me tell you what Peter told me. And he didn't say, hey, let me, I, I'm going to get Luke to interview a bunch of eyewitnesses. Let me tell you what Luke got, the information he gathered. And he didn't just say, hey, John, I want you one person to write it down and tell everybody what you saw. But in his wisdom, because of the skepticism of mankind, not just in this century, but in every century, even in this century, God in his wisdom did everything possible. There was no video. He did everything. There was no photography. He did everything possible to capture what actually happened in the first century and protected it and delivered it to us in this generation. And if what these books say actually happened, actually happened, and if Jesus actually said what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say he said, then we have reason to pause and we have reason to reflect and say, just because I've never seen God do anything doesn't mean he hasn't done anything. And just because I've never seen God intervene when humankind, and just because I've never seen God interrupt tragedy doesn't mean he hasn't. And just because I haven't seen a miracle doesn't mean there hasn't been one. And maybe I need to look at the evidence based on the authority of the evidence alone. And be careful not to impose my 21st century experience 
on what maybe God has protected and delivered to me. You know what? This same kind of thinking, and I said this in the first service and people laughed, and I don't mean this to be funny because I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or view. But it's that same reasoning that says that, you know, I grew up here in high school and college that says, once upon a time there was nothing, and then there was something. Once upon a time, the universe wasn't. And then, boom, the universe was. And we say, wait a minute. What about a creator? No, 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 no. We can't talk about a creator because I've decided before we begin the discussion, there's not a creator. There's no intelligent designer. So I will now look at the evidence and I will come up with a theory and I will come up with an explanation for the design of the universe But I cannot factor in the supernatural because I've decided before the discussion begins there is no supernatural. And yet, all of us look at creation and we think somebody had to design this. There had to be a creator. It's too big of a leap of faith to believe that once upon a time the universe wasn't and boom, the universe was. And from an explosion came us. You know what? I haven't proved anything. All I'm saying is this. What does the universe point toward? Why can't we just go with the conclusion that the universe is pointing toward? Because I can't, I've already decided before I look at the evidence, I can't factor in the supernatural. All I want you to hear this morning is this. Be careful. That's not reasonable. Isn't it logical? If you were on trial for your life, or your child was on trial for your life, would we want the jurors to come in with a predisposition toward what could have happened based on what's happened to them in their lives? No, we would want them to look at the evidence and conclude based on the evidence, not their personal prejudices. And see, my prayer for you, if maybe you're not a religious person or Christian or you don't know where you used to be or you know you were in and now you're out. Here's our prayer during this series. Is that just as we believe the design of the universe, screams of a designer, in the same way, this is so great, in the same way, these manuscripts... Send us a messenger, a message that not only is there a designer and a creator, there's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And just as God has given us overwhelming evidence in nature that He is alive and well, through the portals of time and through His careful selection and protection, we have the message of forgiveness Not from one eyewitness, not from two eyewitnesses, but from two eyewitnesses, somebody who interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses, and then one individual who got his information from one single eyewitness. It's God's way of saying, something happened. And here's the explanation as to what happened.